This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. Now let's take a trip. It's going to be a long, long one. To be exact, it will be 140 million miles, and for those that are more comfortable with kilometers, 225,300,000 kilometers, and it's likely to last more than 260 days. Have you figured out where we're going? It's the planet Mars. Now, whether humans should go to Mars is a popular topic and debate, and no matter which side you're on, it's clear that just planning for such a trip, we're going to learn a lot about the human body. My guest today is Scott Parazinski, a physiologist, doctor, mountain climber, and if that wasn't enough, former astronaut. Currently, he's the new university explorer at Arizona State University, and he's taken a little time out of his day to sit down, chat about space, what he learned and experienced, and what the future might hold for people who travel to distant planets like Mars. Welcome to the show, Scott Parazinski, and thank you for visiting with me today. Great to be with you, Dr. Biology. When I sat down and started thinking about questions I wanted to ask you, I realized I was going to have a really difficult time keeping my list short. And uh, <laughs> so to start off with, I thought I would stay with the theme of the show and ask how a biologist slash physiologist ends up becoming an astronaut. Well, you know, the, the space program requires all sorts of different skill sets. And so uh, we need, of course, pilots to fly the space shuttle or the spacecraft. We need people to conduct the science to take care of our astronaut crews on orbit. We need to have scientists to operate different types of experiments, astrophysics and uh, engineering and so on. And so my, my role, among many others, was to take care of the crew as a physician. And that's a perfect segue for me. Thank you. We have a story on Ask a Biologist called Spaced Out Physiology. And in the story, we talk about NASA's plane, the KC-135. Love it. Yeah. That, well, I'm <laughs> glad you say you love it because it's got yes. the nickname of Vomit Comet. <laughs> right. Since you say you love it, I suspect that means you've done some training in it. I probably have more time in that aircraft than any other astronaut. I have thousands of parabolas uh, aboard that aircraft, indeed. Perfect. So how did it compare with your experience of zero gravity in space? It compares very closely. The uh, challenge, of course, is if you're flying on a, a windy or buffety day, the parabolas aren't perfect. You know, we tend to get about 25 to 30 seconds of weightlessness. And uh, the only problem with these uh, parabolas is that they're too short. You know, you want them to go on forever <laughs> as if you were in space. But they're a great environment to test out hardware, to do experiments, to test things out before you take them uh, up to the International Space Station. So you use the word parabola. And so we're really talking about this giant arc that goes across, right? Correct. At a certain point on that path, you end up with basically zero gravity. So you feel weightless. How You say they're too short. How long are they? They're about 20 to 30 seconds in length typically. And, and so that's the fun part. When we're pushing the nose of the plane over, we float inside the aircraft. The payback though in the part – uh, where it's called the violent comet, is we then have to pay for that by having a 2G pullout. And that transition from zero gravity to 2G can be very provocative uh, for some people, and they get uh, quite ill. Thankfully, I never had that problem. 2G, in simple terms, it means you're twice your body weight. So if you weigh 100 pounds, uh, you would weigh 200 pounds in that aircraft, right? Another question I have, and this one might be really tough to answer, for the earthbound people, those have never gotten into space, 
Can you describe what it's like to be in space in zero gravity? It's such a dreamlike, wonderful state. If you've ever been on the surface of a pool on a float, for example, or if you've ever been snorkeling and just allowed the, the waves to kind of you know take you where they will, the current, or been scuba diving is an even better example where you're underneath in three dimensions of water and uh, you're what we call neutrally buoyant. You don't sink to the bottom of the ocean. You don't float to the top. That for... Uh, all intents and purposes, is what it's like to float in space. The only thing that's different is that the views are quite a bit different uh, when you're up in space. And then secondly, if you were to kick in the water, of course, you're going to propel yourself. But up in space, you just look silly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, how about this? Does lack of gravity ever get old or tiring? Microgravity or weightlessness never gets old. And in fact, uh, you enjoy it more and more with each Uh, subsequent mission, and you get better at it. So if you look at the astronaut crews that are living aboard the International Space Station now, they look like Olympic gymnasts or divers. They can fly with the greatest of ease. They can do barrel rolls and aileron rolls like an aerobatic pilot. It's really graceful and beautiful. And so the more time you have up there, the more fun it gets. You've done a lot of uh, spacewalks as well. I've been very, very fortunate. That's the ultimate astronaut experience, to get outside in your own personal spaceship. Everything that you need to sustain life in a spaceship, you need to have on your back or around you to take you safely out into the vacuum of space. The the temperature extremes uh, when we're behind the Earth and in shadow, what we call orbital night, can be 200 degrees below zero, incredibly brutally cold. And then when we're in direct sunlight in orbital day, we can be 300 degrees above zero. So in one orbit of the Earth, in a 90-minute period, we can see a 500-degree temperature change. Just amazing. So those suits are really doing a lot of work. They are doing a lot of work for us. We couldn't imagine going outside without them. So let's talk about the one-year experiment that NASA's just started. Mm -hmm. It's with twin astronauts Mark and Scott Kelly. Scott will be in space for a year while his brother Mark will be on Earth. Correct. What tests will be conducted, and what are we likely to learn? Well, Mark and Scott are uh, good buddies of mine, and I'm I'm really excited for Scott's big adventure. He'll be in on orbit for 342 days, so almost a full year, whereas his astronaut brother will be grounded. He is also an astronaut, so we have lots of data going back to his initial selection, for actually for both of the astronauts. And so we'll be able to look at how... Scott's body adjusts to weightlessness for a long period of time. And you know, when astronauts go into space, it, it's essentially an accelerated aging process. The heart doesn't need to pump against gravity, so it, it atrophies. It, it grows weak. The muscles and bones that hold us up here on Earth, they don't have to work as hard, so they atrophy as well. Scott's going to try and exercise as much as he can and keep his physical integrity the best that he can, but it won't be the same as being on Earth. And so, you know, Comparing these two individuals at the end of his mission will be very, very interesting, looking at all sorts of different physical parameters. Do you know what kind of tests they'll use? Yeah, so they'll be looking at uh, bone density, uh, muscle strength. They'll be looking at balance. They'll be looking at the vision uh, to see if there's any visual shifts. Scott will have a really tough time with a, a fluid shift coming back to Earth, so he'll feel very lightheaded once he initially lands and so looking at his readaptation to gravity will be interesting. I have some funny stories just from space shuttle astronauts getting back to Earth, you know, forgetting how to throw things. Uh, you know, when we're up in space and we have a meal together, we can toss tortillas across the cabin 
just like a Frisbee, and you can catch it in your teeth. So uh, when you get back to earth and you try and shoot a basketball, for example, every shot is an air ball. You know, you, you can't relearn that arc. It takes quite some time. And balance is very challenging the first few days back on earth as well. And Scott will need to go basically through physical therapy to get his strength back over several months. And this is just with one year. That's correct. And so when we think about going to Mars, it could be a two to three year round trip mission. And when we're talking about spending time in space, well, you haven't spent years in space or, or even, well, I guess you could say... A couple months. A couple months, five missions, eight weeks. What differences did you notice most about your body when in space and when you returned to Earth? Great question, Dr. Biology. I think up in space, I was really stunned by how quickly I adapted into that environment, how natural it was for human beings to be there how quickly we learn to move, how quickly it feels like home. And so I, I think the human being is so adaptable to many different challenging environments. The real challenge is coming back home to one gravity. You feel like a 100-year-old man. I remember my first mission, I had my orange pumpkin suit on, which had oxygen cylinders and a parachute harness and all the survival gear on me. And uh, the reentry profile, we, we feel about one and a half times our body weight or 1.5 Gs. And so, you know, carrying your, your own body weight, let alone 70 additional pounds, plus that acceleration, squeezing you down into your seat, I felt very, very heavy and it was very uncomfortable initially. But, uh, you know, slowly we got out of our suit and we, we readjusted to, uh, to Earth's gravity. So for a short shuttle flight, we can do quite well it's much more of a challenge for those crew members who spend six or more months up in space. I started the show talking about a trip to Mars. What are likely the biggest challenges for humans who travel to Mars? I think there are a number of challenges that can be met. One is the radiation risk to crew members. It's a long time outside of the Earth's magnetic fields, which protect us from radiation. Radiation, of course, can give us cancer, it actually can prove fatal in very high doses. Uh, we call it acute radiation poisoning. It's a very serious thing. So we need to design our spacecraft to uh, help shield the crew from that radiation and make our trip to Mars as quick as possible so that we limit the integrated exposure to radiation. The other thing that's going to be difficult is it's a long time for our radio waves to get to Mars. It could be several minutes one way. And so we're very accustomed on the International Space Station to just pick up the microphone and talk to Mission Control, and they have an immediate answer for us. But say we have a, a surgical emergency, and the crew medical officer on board has never done that kind of a surgery before, or we have a faulty piece of equipment that is life critical, and we need to act quickly. We need to have the resources on board to be able to deal with lots of different contingencies. And so you know, selecting the crew, selecting the, the kinds of training, selecting the provisioning of the spacecraft. What are we going to take with us? Will we grow our own food or will we take it all freeze-dried with us? Lots of different exciting challenges for engineers and scientists to figure out. On an earlier show, we had um, microbiologist Cheryl Nickerson. Sure. Cheryl's done quite a bit of research in space, not that she's been in space, but her experiments have. She spends a lot of time thinking about microbes and things that could actually make you rather sick. Correct. 
Is this another area that we need to explore for our trip to Mars? Indeed it is. And you know, studying how pathogens, they're called, the you know, bacteria that, that can infect the body and, and be a problem for us, is a, an amazingly important area for us to look at. Also, how our immune system, the, the part of our body that protects us from infection, changes as well. And so we need to learn more about that. Secondarily, I think it's important that we study these areas because it can actually help us here on Earth. If we can understand how salmonella, like uh, Dr. Cheryl Nickerson studies, uh, how that can mutate and be more pathogenic or harmful to the body up in space, perhaps we can design better antibiotics or, or other treatment strategies to, to fight these deadly pathogens. When we talked about the challenges with being in space and the lack of gravity. I've read that astronauts can exercise up to two hours a day. And I also was doing some research on you, and I understand that you've been involved with design of some of these exercise Correct. Um, mm-hmm. equipment. Tell me a little bit about these. Well, so when we go into space, basically our body goes on holiday. We don't need to lift our muscles and bones, our body weight, uh, against the force of gravity. And so... Our, our muscles grow weak. Our, our bones grow weak. It's called atrophy. And so to maintain our muscle and bone health, we need to somehow figure out a way to replicate the what we call the loading history. We need to have our muscles and bones see the same amount of, of work such that when we come back to Earth or when we land on Mars, we'll have the physical strength to get up and get out in an emergency or to, uh, or to go to you know, assembling a, a, a Mars colony or what what have you. So we need to have strategies that keep the uh, body healthy, muscles, bones, as well as the heart. The problem is it's very costly to fly up a full gymnasium into space, and we can't take stacks and stacks of weights because they would be meaningless. So, so we have to think of different ways to provide resistance to the body. And we use hydraulic systems and other types of resistive mechanisms to uh, give ourselves that loading history when we get up into space. We have treadmills that have special harnesses that pull us down onto the treadmill surface so that we can sort of feel like we're running on Earth. We have big hydraulic systems that press down on our bodies and we can resist those as if we were doing a squat or something like that. The things that I've been interested in working on are devices that are very small and lightweight and compact because when we go to Mars, we won't have the ability to take a huge system like even on board the International Space Station. It's quite a large facility. We'll need something that can fit in a tiny capsule with uh, four or six crew members. So thinking about how we can miniaturize these technologies but still provide the the workload that they need. So what about sleep? Sleep is uh, really fun and interesting in space, especially in weightlessness. I think you know, perhaps sleeping on the moon or Mars would be more like sleeping here on, on Earth. But when you're in space, first off, you don't need quite as much sleep because your body hasn't done as much physical labor. We aren't carrying our body around, so we don't get physically as tired as we would on a day here on Earth, except if you've been out on a spacewalk, which is very physically taxing. But uh, we uh, we have sleeping bags, just like on a camping trip, and we can Velcro them to the ceiling, to the wall, upside down, left, right, to the floor, you know, wherever you can find for your real estate. And you're actually floating inside your sleeping bag. So you know, there are times when you don't have any contact at all with your sleeping bag. You're just kind of floating inside this this bag. 
And for some of us, it's kind of disconcerting to not have a physical contact with something. And so NASA engineers were very clever. They created a special pillow for us that has a Velcro strap that allows us to Velcro our head to the pillow. And that gives us a sense of connectivity of grounding. And then psychologically, I guess, we were able to then sleep. Very interesting. When we talk about the first step, we could say we had our first step. We went to the moon. And now we're talking about humans traveling to Mars. There's a debate about this, whether we really should go to Mars or not. And I suspect you have a view on this. I do. I think it's ultimate human destiny that we will go. It's not a question of if, but when. And the reason we'll go is to satisfy human curiosity. There are many things, wonderful things, that we can accomplish with robotic exploration, and and these things are happening right now, today, that are just mind-boggling. And, and of course, the technology is getting better. But in order to, to really accelerate knowledge, to press technology, to really make the ultimate types of discoveries, did life once exist on Mars? Does it exist to this day in the permafrost or or near Olympus Mons, the, the tallest mountain in the solar system. I think we're going to need to send human explorers to not just survey point locations in a very simple and limited way, but we're going to need to send explorers that can cover vast distances, make the real-time decisions to pick up that rock and not that rock, to be able to fix and repair and make iterative decisions in science to really accelerate the, the growth of knowledge. The other reason that we'll go um, is much the reason that we went to the moon. We didn't realize it at the time, I, I think. But when we take on great challenges like this, we all benefit in terms of new technologies, new industries, uh, new ways of thinking and doing business, and, of course, the inspiration that follows. And so you know, we, we don't know how we're going to really get to Mars yet, how we'll sustain life, how we'll bring the crew back. All these things are very daunting challenges that will be very specialized solutions for that mission, but it will have a huge trickle effect to our national economy, to the the world as a whole. And quite honestly, when we do go to Mars, it may be as part of an international collaborative effort. So it may actually be something that brings the world together as well. Mm. And I would not minimize the impact on learning about the human body. Indeed. This will be one of the great challenges. You know, what does it mean to essentially move off of planet Earth for a very, very long time, sustain it through a long period of weightlessness, to go live on a partial gravity system and then bring them back home. Uh, It'll be a a unique set of circumstances that uh, I think the International Space Station is helping us get ready for, but we won't really know until we send crews out there. Okay, let's come back to Earth. You also like to climb mountains. I do. How many mountains have you climbed? Oh, gosh. I've climbed all over the world. I've been very fortunate to climb uh, all up and down the Rockies. I've been in Alaska. I've been to the Alps, the Andes. But uh, perhaps my biggest claim to fame or notoriety is a couple of seasons on Mount Everest, which uh, was my boyhood dream to get a chance to climb that mountain. So climbing Mount Everest or going into space? Space. But I wouldn't trade the experience of Everest uh, for a second. You know, it's interesting when I think back on, on Everest. It took me two tries to make it to the top. My first season, I ended up rupturing a disc in my low back and had to limp on down from a very high altitude. 
And so the fact that I didn't succeed my first year and I was able to persevere, I had to have surgery actually to get a disc fixed, but I returned the next year and it was successful. And I think anything that we really have to fight for, anything that's a, a real challenge ends up being more rewarding in the long run. And so I think back on my successful summit of Everest is one of my my proudest achievements, actually. Well, one of your interests as a physiologist and a physician is how humans adjust and adapt to extreme conditions and stressful environments. Right. Space is one place we can see both extreme and stressful environments. Another would be high altitude. Mm -hmm. Did you find that your experiences in space and climbing mountains had any similarities? Great question. And, And there are many parallels, actually. I remember walking, well, actually crawling out of the vestibule of my tent at Camp 4 on Mount Everest the morning of my summit and thinking this is just like floating out of the airlock hatch on a spacewalk. I had a big puffy down suit on, I had big boots, a harness on. I was clipping into a fixed line. I had an oxygen mask on, lights, cameras, big bulky gloves, and uh, complete pitch darkness just as if I was exiting the airlock at, at orbital nighttime. And uh, I realized that I was also very dependent upon my team and uh, the equipment that I was relying upon and my training and my judgment. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm well prepared. I've had all these experiences in space, and I'm ready for my summit. Here's a little known fact. I've actually been on a taller mountain than Mount Everest. And I want to give the height of Everest is 29,035 feet. Correct. Uh, it's a little under 9,000 meters. And I want to be really clear. I'm not saying higher than Mount Everest, but taller. And actually, it's not the tallest. I've been on Mount Lam Lam, which is on the island of Guam. And there is some controversy whether they call it a mountain or not. But I can say what you don't know is that little tiny peak that's above the water actually goes all the way down. To the ocean floor. Ocean floor to the Challenger Deep of the Mariana Trench. Those that don't know this, the deepest point on the earth is at this location, and it's over 35,000 feet. It's actually 35,814 if you're counting, and that's a little under 11,000 meters. And I bring this up because of your interest in extreme and stressful environments. Have you thought about exploring the Mariana Trench? I have, indeed. In fact, uh, I've been jokingly referring to it as the exploration trifecta, but uh, I would love to uh, follow in the footsteps of Picard and uh, I forget the other explorer back in uh, the first to, to go down and then, of course, James Cameron more recently visited. But it's only been visited by three human beings in the history of time, and I, I think it's an incredible technological scientific feat. Which is really a great topic in the sense that we've sent how many people into space? About 550. And we only have how many that have gone to the deepest part of the ocean? Three. Three. That's right. Okay. So what's the main reason? Technologically, it's very, very difficult. The pressure extremes are extraordinary. And so it's an amazing technological feat to get there. Secondarily, it's perhaps not quite as visually captivating for the public, but I think there's an incredible scientific wealth that could be gained from studying our, our oceans. You know, we know more about the surface of Mars and Venus and the moon than we do of the bottom of our oceans. So I think it's a great unexplored frontier for, for all of us explorers. Is it one atmosphere difference between going into space and being on Earth? Correct. Yeah, so there we have one, yeah, so one atmosphere. And 
Is it for every 10 feet? 33 feet of seawater, is that what it is, uh, for, for one atmosphere? I, I'm not exactly sure. So you can see very quickly there's an amazing amount of pressure. Uh, it's very difficult to engineer systems that will withstand those kinds of pressures. But back to physiology, we have some sea creatures that live at an amazing depths. Here's a great place to be doing a lot of learning, right? Indeed. I'm fascinated by the uh, mid-Atlantic ridges and some of the geothermal vents and the creatures that live there. Every place that we look on our planet, the Atacama Desert, the highest mountains, the bottom of our oceans, life thrives. And so how does it do that? How is it adapted to these extraordinary environments? That's one of the most exciting realms of biology I can think of. On Ask a Biologist, I always ask three questions of my guests. Some of them I have to modify for you. <laughs> so we'll start with the first one. When did you first know you wanted to be a biologist slash physiologist or perhaps in your case a doctor or astronaut? I think I sort of crystallized on my vision to become an explorer when I was five or six years old. I, In fact, you, we've been talking about uh, the oceans and marine biology. One of my boyhood heroes was Jacques Cousteau. And so I wanted to be a marine biologist and, and work for Jacques Cousteau, and I was lucky to meet him later in life. But I think I knew very early that I wanted to be an explorer. My dad worked on the Apollo program, so I was very interested in the space program back then as well, thinking about becoming an astronaut. Did you ever have any detours, not get to where you wanted to go as quickly as you wanted? Oh, yes. Everyone's uh, pathway through life has some kinks in the road. And so I think what's most important is to have goals and then have the tenacity to continually work towards them. And sometimes you find that your aspirations won't be exactly met, but the people you meet, the, the doors that open, sometimes very interesting. One of the things that I failed to do, but I don't consider it a failure, um, I, I wanted to be on the U.S. Olympic luge team. And so I was competing vigorously for that. Didn't quite make the Olympic team in 1988, but I ended up going to the Calgary Olympics as a coach for the Philippines of all places. A friend of mine needed a coach, and, uh, and so I ended up marching in the opening ceremonies and living in the Olympic Village for the Calgary Winter Olympics. So it was an unexpected silver lining for me. All right, the next question. And this one's a bit hard to ask you because I have to take away more than your physiology, more than your medical career, mountain climbing, and of course, being an astronaut. If you were not able to be or do any of these, what would you be and what would you do? Well, I think a um, couple of things that would actually three fields that I seriously considered uh, marine biology, I mentioned, which is sort of related. But uh, interestingly enough, when I was a kid, we lived overseas in lots of different unusual places. I went to uh, junior high school in Beirut, Lebanon, and Athens, Greece. And so I was fortunate to travel to Egypt. And I was fascinated with the Egyptian culture. And I, I thought archaeology and Egyptology would be a really exciting culture and, and society to understand and the architecture, the science that they pursued. And finally, and I don't think I, I would have succeeded at this in any stretch, but I loved architecture. I can't draw worth a lick. So I think I would have been a horrible failure at architecture, but I, I think in three dimensions, and I think it would have been a fun thing to be a part of as well. All right. The last question. What advice would you have for a young biologist slash scientist uh, or perhaps someone who always wanted to go into space? I think it's an exciting time to be alive, to be a young person pursuing those kinds of dreams. The 
the access to information, the, the ability to collaborate, uh, the discoveries that are going to be possible based on all that we know now is just extraordinary. So, you know, if I were a young person interested in biology or medicine, you know, I'd be very excited about what's happening in what's called regenerative medicine, the ability to maybe even grow our own organs if we need an organ transplant to, to heal the body. Nanomedicine is another technology where we're taking nanotechnology and building devices and drug delivery systems that can heal the body. And so I think that would be an amazing environment to get in, involved in. And then in terms of space exploration, there's going to be so many more opportunities for people to fly in the future. In the past, it's been very highly select government astronauts, but now we're going to have space tourism. We're going to have independent space laboratories where scientists can go fly and conduct their experiments. And so it won't just be NASA and the big government agencies flying in space. It'll be SpaceX and Blue Origin and Sierra Nevada and Virgin Galactic and and Bigelow Aerospace that will be taking other types of astronauts as well. So I think it's very exciting for young people's future. It's interesting on Ask a Biologist, we had a podcast with uh, Paul Davies. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. And Paul is really great on looking towards what what life could be out there. Mm-hmm. And even better yet, what do we think of as life? Because we're pretty specialized in what we think right. about is something that's We're living. very myopic, I think. Yes, yeah. exactly. So um, do you think life exists beyond Earth? I'm absolutely convinced of it. However, I would say that I don't think that we've ever been visited by little green men. There's a lot of excitement about UFOs and that sort of uh, theme, but uh, there's no evidence that we've had those types of higher levels of visitation, so to speak. But I think as we've looked outward at our solar system and and beyond uh, to our universe, there are star systems that have orbiting planets. Hundreds of them have been discovered, including some that have signatures that would suggest that they could harbor life, the, the ingredients of life as we currently understand them, water, carbon. And so I think the, the building blocks for life exist. And so even though the distances between all of us are so great, it would be very difficult to imagine traveling between these locations. I think that either life has co-evolved in different places or perhaps comets have helped seed life in different parts of the universe. With that, Scott Perzinski, thank you for visiting with me today. Really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been Scott Perzinski, physiologist, doctor, mountain climber, and astronaut. He is currently the new university explorer at Arizona State University. For those of you that might like to explore more about space and physiology, you can visit our companion story called Spaced Out Physiology. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu forward slash explore, forward slash spaced dash out dash physiology. That's a long URL, I know. So don't worry if you couldn't write it down. If you come to our website and look at this podcast, you'll see that there's a link to the story. The Ask About This podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University and is recorded in the Grassroots Studio, housed in the School of Life Sciences, which is an academic unit of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. And remember, even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu, or you can just Google the words Ask a 
biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.